please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you stand, I'll be reading verses 2 through 16. 1 Corinthians 11 verses 2 through 16 as we continue to look at this difficult passage and yet one that we should delight in as it lays out for us the way in which we live in relationship with one another in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11 beginning in verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off, for it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Please be seated. The reason I'm wearing this t-shirt this morning instead of my normal tie I had the privilege this weekend of spending uh, time at the church here with about 75 or 80 teens, leaders, and parents at our Bible quizzing retreat. Now, this is the culmination of our Bible quiz season, which began in June and involved seeking to memorize the entire book of 2 Timothy. Now, during the weekend, we have competition in which the teams have to answer questions about the, about the content of 2 Timothy and quote, word perfectly, various portions of the book. And we spend the evening worshiping the Lord in song and being taught from the book of 2 Timothy. Then the teens head to host homes for the evening to review the lesson and have a lengthy time of fellowship and hopefully a lengthy time of sleep. But that's rare, I think. Now, I do want to offer special thanks to those who graciously offered their homes this year. We had so many that I couldn't even use them all. Uh, Those homes were offered up to five to seven young people to feed them breakfast, snacks, help transport them to, uh, to and from the church, and to let them take over their home, essentially, for the weekend. So thank you so much for those that volunteered to help. Now, we also had a time, really a culmination on Saturday night, where the teens have a chance to share, teens and leaders, share verses and concepts from Second Timothy that were meaningful to them. And this is a particularly sweet time to hear teen after teen comment on how they've been impacted by the Word of God. Now, certainly not all of those teens were able to memorize the entire book, but nearly everyone had something memorized, maybe at least one verse. And they'd been continually exposed, really from from June on, they'd been continually exposed to the text of the book of 2 Timothy as a whole. Now, I don't mention uh, the Bible quizzing program to pump the egos of those who were involved in quizzing. There's nothing inherently spiritual, spiritual about seeking to memorize a book of the Bible, and one could memorize a whole book and receive very little benefit if there's no understanding or application of what they're memorizing. However, the key point is that we value the Word of God enough to encourage our young people and truly the church as a whole to memorize large portions of God's Word, to hide it in our hearts, because it is only in this way that we can truly come to know Him as He is. We must know His Word. 
It must, our hearts must be full of the richness of the Word of God. We want our teens and we want each person to invest, to immerse in the Word of God because all Scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, fully equipped for every good work. We want our young people to learn to guard through the Holy Spirit the treasure which has been entrusted to them and we want them to be diligent to present themselves to God as workmen who do not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And in this way, we prepare them to fight the good fight, to finish the course, and to keep the faith. Now, all of this applies directly to our message this morning, really any time we open the word of God, because we need to remember its value, its importance. It is not the word of men. It is the inspired word of God to us. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. It contains everything we need for life and for godliness. And really, that's what the Apostle Paul has continually reminded the Corinthians of as he speaks of his own apostolic authority, that he's presenting to them the truths of the gospel and really the applications of the gospel in order to overcome culture and truly reflect Christ. And in our passage here, in verse 2, he says, I praise you because you remember me in everything. They remembered the apostle. They remembered his speaking and teaching them the truth and then it says and that you hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you even though the church was wrestling and struggling they were clinging to the truths of the gospel they understood that those were the essential truths that come from God himself and this is vital for us particularly when we come to a chapter like 1 Corinthians 11, which speaks of the, of the nature of male and female roles, which talks about what it means to have, have headship in relationship, where there's authority and submission, where relationships have a structure to them, both in the church and in the home and in society itself. These particular passages and these roles are under intense fire from the world. They always have been and ever increasingly so. Even the idea of what it is to be male and female as clearly reflected in our text, tied back to the nature of men and women as they were created by God in the beginning. All of this fits together. All of it is his inspired word. And so therefore we must come to grips with how important it is to believe it and to put it into practice. You see, it used to be that I could appeal to a kind of a cultural tradition when it comes to talking about male and female roles, the kind of echoes of a Judeo-Christian ethic which existed in our culture, but no longer. I can't even use the word male and female without bringing all kinds of baggage up in the minds of those who have been inundated by our society when it comes to these truths. No longer is there a cultural commonality. There is only, and I think in one sense this is... uh, you know, this has always been the case. There is only the truths of Scripture that we cling to. You can't cling to your culture's understanding of male and female or marriage or any of these vital issues. You're going to have to cling only to the Word of God. Well, that's always how it should have been. But now, particularly, we are called to understand, to preach, to live out these specific truths. If we do not celebrate, practice, and guard the inspiration, authority, and sufficiency of the Word of God, then we have nothing with which which to guard ourselves or our next generation from the whims and wickedness of our sinful selves, our sinful culture, and our evil adversary. Everything we need to know about authority and submission, who we are as male and female created in the image of God, is found in the pages of Scripture, and we delight in it. We make no excuses for it. It has to be properly understood properly practiced, but it is written down for us here. And we delight in it because we love God's word and we love his plan for men and women in the church. We love it. We delight in it. And so we're going to preach it, present it, and live it. What we'll see this morning, 
God has designed the universe to operate under his authority. And he has designated the necessary authority structures to carry out his sovereign plan through the wise, loving exercise of biblical authority. God has designed the entire universe to operate under his authority. And he has designated the necessary authority structures to carry out his sovereign plan through the wise, loving exercise of biblical authority. Authority and submission are necessary for the success of God's plan of redemption. Now, in our text, 1 Corinthians 11, we began studying in verse 2. Right? And it's going it's to take us a long time to get to verse 16. So if you're wondering about head coverings and how all that works and why we haven't really talked about that yet, we have to get all of the foundation laid. And Paul does that. He does it in really one verse. But because, again, there's so much confusion here, we're taking time to just unpack these things so that when I start talking about the nature of male-female submission, as it was reflected in Corinth in the head coverings, we'll have a better understanding of how we are to live that out now and how we take these principles and apply them. This is essential. So we're taking our time. And last week, we really, or two weeks ago, we just discussed his praise to them. And this is important, and I would offer the same praise to you, that you are hearing the truth of the word of God, that you're holding fast to the person and work of Christ. Because when he says that they are holding fast to the traditions, I'm convinced that he is referencing their understanding of the person and work of Jesus. They were orthodox in their belief about what salvation entails, that Jesus is the God-man, the perfect man who lived on this earth, never sinning, went to the cross to die a substitutionary death in our place, taking the wrath of God, making full provision for all the sins of all who would believe, and then dying, rising again for, to, to bring us new life. And that the only way to have that new life is to repent of sin and to trust in him. The Corinthians believed this. They were clinging to this in a culture that knew nothing of that. So that was to their credit, and that's to your credit. But you need to understand that the rest of this, he praises them for that because if they're not holding true to the gospel, the rest of this is just going to be ridiculous to them. If you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're not holding fast to the truths of Jesus, of Christ and him crucified, then our explanations of how we please Jesus in male-female relationships are going to be meaningless to you. You're going to hate them, in fact. You're going to wonder, how can that possibly be? And if it rises up in your heart in anger towards the proper interpretation of male and female roles of biblical headship, then you need to check and see, do I know the Jesus who gives these instructions? That's really going to be the issue. It's not that we won't wrestle with these. Of course we will. I mean, there'll be, there'll be things about these instructions that our sinful flesh will not like. But if this is fundamentally a problem for you, if you, if you hate this teaching, well, then it means you're not clinging to the truths of the gospel as you need to. That's what Paul is laying out here. Look, you cling to the gospel, so now I'm going to correct your fleshing out of those truths in your male and female roles, which really reflect the character and nature of God himself. So, last week then, we really all we did in verse 3 was to define one word. I mean, that's essentially what the whole sermon was about. We defined the word head, which really has to do with a, with a, a, a concept, that of headship, that there is authority to be exercised in relationship. And where there is authority, there is therefore then submission to that authority. We call it a hierarchy of relationship. And this, this is built into the relationships that God has created and really into the universe as a whole. There is structure in every relationship. And all of them involve a, some form of leadership and submission. 
So this idea of head as we defined it, and I certainly will not go back through the word study this morning, for which you can be grateful. Uh, we're moving on, but I will remind you of the definition because, again, the word head is used throughout this particular passage to reflect the nature of how men relate to women, that men have this headship role. But you notice in verse 3 that also the, this headship idea is found Christ as the head of every man, and God as the head of Christ. So there's much more going on here than just male-female roles. That's going to be the cultural wrestle of the time is relating men to women. Paul says, look, this all is bound up in God's relationship to Christ and you men, your relationship to Christ. So Christ's relationship to God and your relationship to Christ, it's all bound together. And it's under this idea, this concept of headship, which is, to remind you, So the exercising headship is the position or station from which authority is to be lovingly exercised for the good of those under the authority and to the glory of God from whom the authority originates. So headship, right, to be the head of someone, that's the position or station from which authority is to be lovingly exercised for the good of those under the authority and for the glory of God from whom the authority originates. That's headship. Biblically defined, and then we're going to work our way through it in the various relationships described. We just, again, began that last time. We looked at the introduction to hierarchy, authority, and submission. We began the concept of of what this looks like in society, and so that's where we're going to begin this morning. We just begun to look into the nature of how God has structured his entire universe with authority and submission with this concept of headship. It isn't only in male-female relationships. Some of us making it up for marriage. It's some invention of men who want to subjugate women. It has nothing to do with that. It's an invention of God who, who really reflects his own character and nature in authority and submission. So we began this last time, the nature, so this will be number two on your outline, the nature of hierarchy, authority, and submission by looking at society. That woven throughout society, is this concept of authority and submission, a a hierarchy and relationship. And it began with government and citizens. We talked about that from Romans 13. That where there is a government, you have citizens who do what? Submit. Essentially, the government operates in a headship role. They are overseeing God's authority to those who are under their care. And, of course, governments often do that poorly. In fact, they always do it. They never do it perfectly. There is no godly government in that sense. And yet still, every authority that exists comes from God. That's what we looked at in Hebrews, or excuse me, Romans 13. And then the boss-employee relationship. That in work, in your career and occupation, there is a master-slave orientation, as it were. That there is someone who leads and someone who follows. And that God has designed this. Right? It is built into the fabric of getting things done that when there's a task to be accomplished, somebody leads to do it and others follow that leadership in order to get it done. This will be true into the eternal state. You will be doing work for all of eternity and you will be in an authority structure for all of eternity. It's so not we get to the new heavens and new earth and woohoo, let's have a big party. We're going to go skiing all day long. We see very clearly that the nations come before God in the new heavens and new earth as they're carrying out the gainful work for all of eternity that God has given them to do. So don't think that this authority structure ends with the return of Christ. In fact, he just comes to make it perfect. That's the beauty of it. It doesn't end. There's nothing wrong with authority and submission. It's biblical and godly. It just has to be exercised in a godly way. So there's this boss-employee relationship, and then we talked about a teacher-student relationship. The Bible's clear. It says the master, the teacher's not above, or the student is not above their master. 
Right? There is there's an authority relationship when it comes to those who teach, and they are to exercise authority in that teaching, and those who hear it are to respond to it. There's an authority and submission built into society. Now, new information for this morning, right? there is authority relationship in the church. Now, you guys know these things, but as I said, we're going to look at them in Scripture because you need to be reminded again for your own benefit and blessing, but also as you teach your children, as you teach our young people who are being assaulted in all of these understandings of biblical roles. We have to look at them again. In the church, there is a hierarchy. Now, today what we want to do is we just, everyone wants to have their home church where there's nobody in charge of anything, right? Or really, if it's a home church, they're in charge. So there's one person in charge, it's them, and they don't want to come underneath anyone else. Well, the church should just be democratic, Right? Everybody's got their vote. We toss the vote in the ring, and then we decide that way. Or maybe it's just an anarchy. Everybody just kind of does whatever is right in their own eyes. That is not how God designed his church. It is to have an authority structure. Turn to Hebrews 13. So just join with me in traveling through the Bible this morning. It will be a delight for us. Hebrews 13, which, again, these are things you're aware of, but I just want you to look and see them in the pages of Scripture. Hebrews 13, 17 speaks of this hierarchy, really a kind of headship when it comes to the church. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Ah, (laughs) it's right there. This is a book written to a church, a group of churches. It's a sermon. It's a long sermon. I mean, I like like the writer of Hebrews. We don't know who he was. I'll I'll meet him in heaven and we'll delight because it's a really long sermon. All right, it's great. So he's preaching to his congregation and he gets to the end of really, he's preaching to a series of congregations. He's giving them an exhortation. And he's saying, look, in the church you are, the local church you're at, you need to submit to the leadership that's over you. There is this authority and submission relationship in the church. And he says, the reason this is, says, let them, you know, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. See, they have an authority. The shepherds also have an authority relationship with the master that they're going to have to answer to. So this just keeps working its way out. Leadership. Submission, headship, response, and the congregation is not strong. We cannot accomplish our work if we don't have leaders who are qualified biblically and then who lead a congregation who is willing to follow. Now, does this mean then that the elders are inherently better than the rest of the congregation? Of course not. They're human beings. The shepherds are also sheep. We are all on one level when it comes to being made in the image of God to sharing the same essence Right? We, are the, we share the essence of human beings, of male and female created in the image of God. So there's no superiority found in this headship. It is, it is a, it's leadership and authority of role, not one greater than the other, not one bearing some kind of uh, who is more valuable. All are equally valuable and created in the image of God. But there are those who lead and there are those who follow. This is also true of men and women in general in the church. There is to be a leadership by men in the church and a response of the women of the church to that male leadership. 1 Timothy 2.12. And again, remember, I'm just, I'm like dipping my toe in on each of these things. They're all like sermon series, right? So if you've got questions about these things, you're like, wow, what are we talking about? I mean, you'll need to follow these things up. We've taught on them in other places. But here, it's, it's very clear that there is a response in the church of women to men, and essentially women to the male leadership of the church. So 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain 
quiet. And he goes on to link that back to creation and the nature of, of how God has built male-female relationships, which we'll dig into in depth in 1 Corinthians 11. But this is very clear. God's established order in the church is that men should lead and that women should submit to that leadership as they accomplish the work in ministry that God has given to them. The leaders, the, the elders are to be male. We, we believe the best interpretation of deacons is that they are also to be male. And that when there's leadership, shepherding authority exercised in the church, where the word of God is being dispensed, being taught to the congregation, and also when the word of God is being brought authoritatively, when there's instruction being given, when there's authority being exercised in a shepherding capacity, that that is to be men and that the women respond to that. Now, I just want to say one thing here, because if you look, if you're in 1 Timothy, you'll see this fascinating thought in verse 15. It says, women will be, will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with restraint. And as I said, I, I can't preach this passage this morning, but one of the primary reasons, and I just think it's important to touch on this in our society today, one of the primary reasons that the women are not to focus on the shepherding oversight, is that they are to focus on the role for which God has prepared them, which is to bear children and to bring them up in the nurture of the Lord, to provide a nurturing home environment. So as they are devoting their attentions to that job, then the men are to be devoting their attentions to bringing a nurturing church atmosphere. And like, well, what, what do you mean that the women are to bear children? The only reason that would seem demeaning to you is if you have imbibed deeply from culture. Because I, I want you to understand this. Only women can bear children. So why in the world would it be demeaning to say that is the role that God has given them? It is true that not all women can bear children. I understand that. And not that all women actually get married. God has a place and a plan for singleness. All of these things. But in general, Women were designed and built by God to be the ones who bear children. And so that is their role, primary role in the church, to bear the children and then to, and to nurture in the household. And that's exactly what verse 15 says. These are things that the world laughs at. That they say, that's demeaning to women. Really, it is demeaning to women for them to accomplish the very task for which their bodies were designed. It is only people who have cast aside the Bible who would think that that is demeaning. That raises motherhood, raises bearing and nurturing children to the highest place of God's blessing. Now, you know this to be true, but in an insane society, somehow it's like, well, you've got to put men and women on equal plane. Well, who's greater? <laughs> the one who can actually bear the children or the one who could never, ever, in the history of the world, bear a child? That's a man, by the way. The definition. They cannot accomplish that role. They're unable ever to bear a child in that way. And so therefore, it should not, must not be their role. It elevates the role for the women to accomplish this purpose. And so in the church, that's where their primary energies are devoted. And the men who are never bearing children and their bodies are not designed to go through the process of doing that are the ones focusing on leading the church. This makes beautiful sense in the eyes of God and in the ways he built us. It's only when you're blinded by culture and you forget the differences between men and women that this bothers us, right? So men and women in the church, there is a leadership authority response, a headship of men in the church. Well, this is also true in the family. Turn to Ephesians 6. Again, these are all passages you are familiar with and you're probably like, you know, Chris, you're preaching to the choir here. Well, that's good. 
That's my plan because I want you loving these things, remembering these truths, living them out with a biblical emphasis. And we need all of this before we dig into 1 Corinthians 11. The parent-child, Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it will be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, again, it is clear as could possibly be that there is a hierarchy in parenting. The parent leads, the child submits. The parent directs, the child obeys. You're like, why are you, why are you getting all excited about this? Of course that's true. I, we are, to, in this day and age, We are running into parenting philosophies which say, you can't tell your kid no. If you tell him no, you are removing from him his autonomy and you are not allowing him to develop as he ought to. You are harming him. That is anti-biblical. In order to bring someone up in discipline and instruction, you tell them no, you can do things. Yes, you can do other things. And they are to respond to you. You do not watch your child to see what they will do and then build their life and your life around what they want to do. This is a child-centered home which really causes the breakdown of society as a whole. You bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now notice there, it says fathers, and, and that the fathers are to be bringing that discipline and instruction, both the corporal punishment that's given in the Bible as well as the verbal instructions that are to be given. All of that is fleshed out in Scripture the mothers participating with the fathers in accomplishing that work. They're not to exasperate. They're not to harm. They're never to use that position of authority to crush the individuality of a child, to destroy their personality. That would be unbiblical, ungodly, unloving, and heinous. Fathers are not supposed to do that, but they are supposed to say, no, yes, you can't, you can. You need to look like Jesus. Here's what you need to do. I mean, the vast majority of parenting books, you just need to throw them away. They are worthless. Even, even a lot of the Christian books when it comes to this, and ever increasingly, we need to go back to the realities of what's going on here. Parents lead. Children respond. Parents don't dominate. They properly bring up in biblical instruction. And then, of course, you have the husband-wife hierarchy, right? So you've got parent-child And and again, the the world's trying to flip the script on this where children run the show. I mean, I watch parents, about age 12, maybe age 10, they strap on kind of like a permanent backpack their lawn chair and they follow their kids around and stare at them while they do sporting events or while they do their music events or while they do their debate events. And all of life is built around building the ego of your child. That's why we have the generation that we have. One of the primary reasons. Hey, go see your kids' games. I've, I've seen a lot of games. I've done some coaching. I love doing that with my kids. But I cannot and must not let them and their activities dominate the life of my family. God dominates that. And as we can fit those things in, we do. But we do not walk around just trying to you know, make sure our children succeed in some way. We want them to love Jesus. And they're going to spend So a lot of that time is not going to be with the lawn chair out on the field. It's going to be sitting here in the church and delighting in the things that the church does. Now, husband and wife, of course, you understand the hierarchy there. Just look back into chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. You know there to be a headship relationship here, an authority and a submission properly lived out under the will of God and in the love of God. 
Verse 24, as the church is subject to Christ, right, here's the subjection, here's what it looks like, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. All things as the husband directs the home, as he's directing it towards the things of the Lord. We'll get into this. It doesn't mean that every opinion the husband has, the wife agrees with. That's ridiculous. It would be impossible. No man has that many good ideas. All right? It's not even possible. It doesn't mean that. We're going to flesh that out. But it does mean there's a leadership and a following and a wise instruction. And of course, all this is done, verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're not talking about the headship and submission of Doug Wilson style these days. And I use the name on purpose. If you're not aware of that, you might do a little research this week because, by the way, men, I'm coming for you next week. We're going to begin with Christ is the head of every man. I think that's specific to men. And so I'm coming for you. The Bible's coming for you. You want to have a wife that submits to you? You'd better submit to Christ. And you need to know what that looks like. And it doesn't mean forcing your wife to walk around in the home you know, waiting for her cell phone, on her cell phone, for you to call her. It doesn't mean if she doesn't do the dishes, we do church discipline. That's from Doug Wilson. So just that it doesn't mean that. And yet there's a strong understanding of a biblical headship and response that we need to learn, not the twisted perversions of it that are out there, both on the, on the side where there is no headship in marriage and on the side where there's this dominating, harmful headship where the man just thinks he's got the right to do whatever he wants and that his ideas are always right and that everybody just does what he wants. That's a travesty. That's evil. But it doesn't mean that we undo headship and submission. They're vital. It's done in the love of Christ. Well, this is also true in the created order. So just as we continue on, so if you're on your outline, we had society, we had the church, we have the family, now we have the created order. Now here, and this is where this gets a little dicey because what happens in authority submission relationships is there's immediately this idea that the one in authority is superior, right? Those who take authority tend to think that of themselves, I'm superior. And then it's viewed as if anyone takes it, they're saying they're superior. Now, it is true that there are authority submission relationships in which there is superiority. It's not in the male-female relationship. It's not in human relationships because we're all the same in essence. But as we move into some of these, there is superiority and inferiority. That exists. So let's talk about it, right? We have the created order. So there is a superiority of man that is men and women over the creation. Yes, superior to and that superiority also then leads to their authority over the creation. Men and women and the creation are not equal. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. This is so clear. And yet our society has totally abandoned this. Somehow in this evolutionary mindset, creation has become equal to, that is, all other created beings. And the earth itself has become equal to or greater than human beings. Mother nature now dictates to humans how they are to act. This is a travesty. There's no such thing. Men and women dictate to the creation how it's supposed to act underneath the authority of God. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image. Yes, I think you see a picture of the Trinity there. I don't think it's the magisterial we. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them, notice, man there in verse 26 being used in the general sense of men and women. Okay, sometimes it is used that way. It's used that way here because it says let them rule. Now, did you understand that men and women rule over creation? Not just men 
because they are created equally in the image of God. They partner together in that role to rule the creation, men and women. So it's not like men stand up and say, we rule creation, we rule you, and then women, you get, you know. Men and women rule the creation together because they are equally created in the image of God, but not one other part of creation is in the image of God directly in this way. Nothing. No animals, none of, no mountains or hills or nothing. There's nothing else in the universe that is created with the uniqueness of male and female created in the image of God. If you have to choose between a puppy who is going to die and a child, you choose, of course, the child. A dolphin, a turtle. I don't mean to be demeaning, but this stuff gets crazy. That somehow babies are less important than creatures or even than plants or that your environment will kill people so that we don't have too much carbon released into the atmosphere. This gets crazy. I'm talking burn the earth down and pay no attention. We still have a stewardship aspect. By the way, it's another sermon, but the, the world has fallen. We're no longer bringing it under our dominion for the purpose of glorifying Christ in that way because Christ is going to have to come and reestablish his dominion over the created order because it's fallen. We're stewards, don't misunderstand me. We don't have the same kind of mandate because the world has fallen. We can't fix it. Um, our post-millennial view of this, is, it's wrong. The post-millennial view is wrong. We don't fix it. Jesus is going to come and fix it. So we don't have the same dominion mandate. We now make disciples. That's another sermon. But nonetheless, when it comes to the equality of men and women over the creation, there is a hierarchy of superiority. Men and women are superior to the created Order. There's also a spiritual order in creation, so this would be E on your outline, where God causes all creation to submit to him. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, so you're just right, if you're still in Ephesians, well, if you went to Genesis, now you got to get to Ephesians 1, 15 and 16, or excuse me, one, uh, excuse me, Colossians 1, 15 and 16, it says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are infinitely superior to creation, and thus they rule over it. So creation submits to God, spiritual beings submit to God. Right? All the created, the angelic forces, and then the angels who fell, demons, Satan himself, those are all underneath God's authority. They're not somehow equal with him. He's infinitely greater than they. We'll, I'll use the big word ontologically. That is, in his very essence, he is greater than his creation, and he's not beholden to it, and therefore he exercises authority out of his superiority. There's no yin-yang where you've got the good and the evil and they're equal and they've got to work together to somehow have a, a whole universe. You have good as in who God is dominating and overseeing and having authority over all of the created beings, including the angelic ones. He rules over the evil beings. He rules over Satan. He's not battling him for superiority. He's infinitely greater and he exercises his authority over those things. Job 1.6, there was a day when the sons of God, angelic beings, came to present themselves. They presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Why? He has to present himself. He doesn't come and say, God, you know, I'm, we're going to fight on this. Let's do some arm wrestling. No, he's got to come and say, God, 
I'm presenting myself as your, ultimately, as the one over whom you rule. Certainly then man submits to God out of this superiority relationship. Man and God are not equal. God is not some kind of big man. It's not your, it's not your, your Marvel character. It's not like the you know, Thor or something like that, some bigger, you know, greater human being. He's infinitely greater. He's different in essence than humans, and he has the right, therefore, to rule them from his superiority. We submit to God. All authorities submit. Nations submit. Individual men and women bend the knee, and the church as, a, as an organization or institution submits to Christ. Colossians 1.18, church submits to Christ. Individual men and women, Philippians 2.10, Nations submit to God, Psalm 86, 9. Now, oh, I, I will say this one other thing, F here, which is there is a, there's a nature of submission as relates to the Trinity. Now, some of you are going to only discuss this in your fellowship groups, and so I'm forbidding you to do that. <laughs> Why? Because I'm going to spend, after I go after the men, and then I go after the... Uh, in writing to Christ, and then after the men in, in relationship to women, and, and the women in relationship to men, then I'm going to talk about this issue of God being the head of Christ. We'll get there, all right? However, it is clear, the clarity of this, there is no question that the Son, the incarnate Son, submits to the Father. There is a submission relationship there, most certainly. We saw it in our text in 1 Corinthians 11, where God is the head of Christ, and then 1 Corinthians 15, 28 when all things are subjected to him, that's God the Father, then the Son, God the Son himself, also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. We're going to flesh that out. What does that mean? That at least or certainly in the incarnation, the Son submits to God. But also there is a priority relationship even between the Spirit and the Son and the Father. John 16. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he, that is the Spirit, will not speak on his own initiative. Christ, the Son, the incarnate Son, did not speak on his own initiative. He spoke what? What the Father told him to speak. Fascinatingly enough, the Spirit does not speak on his own initiative. He speaks how? On what the Son says, and the Son is responding to what the Father says, so the Spirit is drawing from the Father and the Son in this priority relationship. He will speak, he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will dispose it, disclose it to you. Now, don't misunderstand. They're not three separate persons in the Trinity. They're all one essence, right? Persons, but not individual people. God does not have parts. They're not three separate wills of God, all kinds of strange things that we can get. But there is the relationship of a priority, even amongst perfect, eternal equals. They have a role, and they respond to one another in the roles of giving priority and coming underneath. This is clearly demonstrated in Scripture. Now, let me just fill in this last, the implications. We'll end here because these implications will now be fleshed out over three weeks at least of first dealing with man's relationship to God, then man's relationship to women, and then God's relationship to Christ. So we're going to do those in at least three, but here are the implications of what we've talked about so far. A, authority and submission are an indispensable element of God's eternal plan. Consider Luke twenty-two forty-two, Jesus in the garden. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. MacArthur says, 
If Christ had not submitted to the will of God, redemption for mankind would have been possible, and we would forever be doomed and lost. If individual human beings do not submit to Christ as Savior and Lord, they are still doomed and lost because they reject God's gracious provision. And if women do not submit to men, then the family and society as a whole are disrupted and destroyed. Wherever or whether on a divine or human scale, subordination and authority are indispensable elements in God's order and plan. B, authority does not imply superiority of ability, personhood, intellect, spirituality, or value. Now, we've already said that there can be superiority exercised in an authority relationship. God is superior to us. He exercises authority. But it is not inherent in authority, that it means that the person exercising the authority has greater value. That's the problem. There can be a value relationship in authority, but it is not inherent. It isn't implied that that's always the case. It has to do with the nature of the beings who are exercising the authority. In the Trinity, is there a difference in being between Father, Son, and Spirit? No, but they can have an authority relationship. Among human beings, is there any difference in our essence? No, but we can have a, an authority-submission relationship which doesn't imply that the person exercising authority is somehow better or greater or more valuable. This is huge. Men and women are made in the image of God. God made them, so he exercises his superiority. They exercise his role relationship, not out of superiority, but out of his command. God is superior in essence and being. Humans are superior to the rest of creation, but no human is superior to another in essence. In fact, the, it's often true that the one who is under authority can be the one who has the greater abilities, the one who actually is able to accomplish things to a better degree. So this idea authority does not imply superiority, but submission, therefore, does not imply inferiority. There's no implication of inferiority in ability, personhood, intellect, spirituality, or value when it comes to submission. Now, let's consider this. In human relationships, equality relationships is certainly true. There can't be inferiority because they're both created in the image of God. Their essence is the same. But it is also true that if one who does, in fact, have inherently greater value that one can, in fact, choose to submit to those who have lesser value. And I ask you, if the Son of God submits himself to human beings, does that make him inferior to them? If you're going to be orthodox, you're going to have to answer, in no way. But he does, and he comes underneath in authority, and he loses none of his value and none of his worth he doesn't become inferior in essence because he submits. No woman becomes inferior in essence because they submit, because to an even greater degree, Christ could never be lesser, and yet he submits. This is stunning. The world does not understand it. The church has totally missed out so often in trying to create an egalitarian sense in relationships. They've totally misunderstood authority and submission, and particularly in relationship to Christ that he can submit himself to the, to the lesser in value and retain, of course, the fullness of his own value. Philippians 2, 5 through 9. D, hierarchy does not inherently promote abuse, domination, coercion, or manipulation. The fact that there is authority in relationship does not promote abuse. Has Christ ever abused the church? No. Is he the head of it? Yes. 
Has God ever abused humanity? No. Is he the head of it? Yes. You see these things? It's, it's, so it's not inherent in authority that it must bring domination and control. It's when sinful men and women get a hold of authority. And it doesn't matter whether, it doesn't matter what the structure is, men and women will taint it because they are tainted. But when a man or a woman is acting in accordance with biblical principles, when they're acting according to the love of God, when they are doing that, they never dominate or manipulate or harm. Never. Now, they do when they're sinning. I got that. And they unfortunately sin both men and women. But never because Scripture commanded it. Never because the actual authority relationship demanded domination or harm or abuse or manipulation. It does not. But that's what the world is teaching you. If there's any kind of authority, then it is inherently wrong and needs to be overthrown. But I just always ask the question, overthrown to what? Well, to the most powerful person's authority. So, hierarchy does not inherently promote abuse, domination, coercion, or manipulation. Authority and submission, then, are based on biblical love and wisdom, not on tyranny and domination. I'll let MacArthur have the last word this morning, or almost the last word. As I told you, I can't quote from anybody else because all my other commentators are doing kind of, they take this left-turn detour to do social commentary and to draw in the culture, and MacArthur remains firm here. The authority and submission in each of these cases is based on love, not tyranny. The Father sent Christ out of love, not under compulsion to redeem the world. The Son submitted to the Father out of love, not compulsion. Christ loves the church so much that he died for it. He rules the church in love, not in tyranny. In response, the church submits to him in love. Likewise, men in general, husbands in particular, must exercise their authority in love and not tyranny. They do not have authority because of greater worth or greater ability, but simply because of God's wise design and loving will. Women respond in loving submission as they were designed to do. This is not a matter of relative dignity or worth, but of task and responsibility. Are you resisting the cultural understanding of authority and submission? Are you leaning into embracing your proper biblical roles of authority and submission according to Scripture? And are you basing all of your thoughts and opinions on the Word of God and not the views of your culture? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truths of your Word. Lord, thank you that you have created us, built us in such a way that we can respond back to you, that you, you've designed us perfectly. We, we're fallen, we, we sin Yet your design is perfect, and I pray that you would help us to, to seek in your power to live according to that design in, in all of our relationships, first and foremost, submitting ourselves to you and to the truths of your word that we might be able to reflect your character in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplaces, to our government, in our church, in every way that we would honor you. In your precious name.